Hey everyone, welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour with Kamenetsky Brothers, Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky. Joined tonight, this is going to be a fun show, I think, joined tonight by Farley Elliott. He is the senior editor at Eater, Eater LA, a great food website, and the author, and I just want to, I'm going to read this so I get it right, Los Angeles Street Food, a history from tamaleros to taco trucks. And I learned tonight a tamalero is somebody who makes tamales, correct? Like on the exactly. street? Exactly. There exactly. Yeah. So there, there used to be, you know, and I'll, I'll dive right into it as the, as the, the guy who put the book together, uh, our original travel logs from the city of Los Angeles dating back before they even completed the railroad, people would come back when it was a smaller, dustier Pueblo. And they would talk about how they didn't believe that there were any indoor dining restaurants in the city of Los Angeles because you'd make it to the center of town and it was just tama, uh, tamale men selling on the corners and basically everywhere you looked. And so that's, you know, we talk about street food in Los Angeles as a core to the way that we eat in a county of 10 million people. We're on par with, I would argue, just about any other food city in the world when it comes to street dining. And uh, tamales have a history here that that predates us by a couple hundred years. So that, that's interesting, that history in and of itself, just because LA has this reputation for street food, but it's also, I think, in a lot of ways, you know, street food culture in general has boomed. But there's mm -hmm. been a lot of attention on L.A. street food in a way that I think a lot of people might feel like that boom comes from like a, a fairly new phenomenon. And, and may not be aware of just how prevalent this was in the first place. Exactly right. You know, I, I grew up on the East Coast. I was certainly not aware of the depth and breadth of street food in Los Angeles. You know, I moved here with a, a backpack and a motorcycle and just kind of had the the tenacity to want to get out and try stuff and ask a lot of questions. Uh, I'm not native. I'm, I'm a white dude from a small town in Northern New York. The only way that I have any sense of approachability when it comes to street food cuisine and the tens of thousands of vendors that exist all over Southern California is to just try to be curious and try to represent those folks the best way that I can. And uh, when you start to explore from that lens, you really realize how beautiful and how varied the cuisine is. But you're absolutely right. It's only been in the past few years that that conversation has gone national and even in some ways global. I think a lot of that has to do with the rise of street food trucks in particular, um, sort of 08, 09, kind of post-recession, Kogi barbecue, all that sort of stuff. And interestingly enough, I think we're going to see a newish version of that now with everything that's been going on as a result of the pandemic. People getting into uh, economic situations that mean that they cannot have restaurants in the traditional sense. And so they're jumping back into entrepreneurship by selling on the street. And we're always a city that loves heat. We love fat. We love spice. We want to eat well in our neighborhood for not a ton of money and street food really delivers that in a way that's unrivaled anywhere else in America. I definitely want to, I don't want to, I, I want to, cause you actually just wrote uh, a really yeah. good feature about, you know, kind of what's going on with food trucks right now for Eater LA. And I don't want to forget that, but I also forget things that I don't ask right away because I have children and I'm tired. So what is the, is there a difference like so like you said we sort of think of street food in now in that sort of truck thing but LA obviously has a super vibrant like dudes with carts guy you know the the pop-up uh you know taco guy on the corner and they're all over the place the the hot dogs and all these other things is there what is the the sort of delineation between or is there one between street food carts and you know you know people selling tamales out of their out of a cooler versus the 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 truck scene 
Yeah, and, and I appreciate you asking. You know, I get a lot of these schlubs coming around asking me the same six questions, and this is a new one. Like, if you if you read the book, it, it's actually kind of uh, segregated into two different sections. The first half is mostly the history, and the second half is exactly what you're talking about: is trying to create a sort of critical breakdown for how you can experience street food in real time. And not all street food is is created equal. You have a lot of family-run, weekend-only operations, people um, selling out of their driveway, selling out of their backyard, particularly these days. People people who are doing things that um, you maybe not traditionally think of as street food historically in Los Angeles. So now it's like Texas style barbecue or something like that. And guys on Instagram selling it out of their backyards. Um, that's a version. Family run uh, small generational operations in Boyle Heights, East LA or Montebello. Those are a version. You have people doing bacon wrapped hot dogs outside of music venues, and sports stadiums. That's a version. And then you've got Kogi barbecue, fancy food trucks. You even have things you might not expect like Farmers markets, um, stalls like Grand Central Market, areas that have a you know sort of pass through mentality that are much more accessible for a young entrepreneur instead of getting into a full fledged brick and mortar business, swap meets, for example. So there's always different ways of thinking about it, and I, and I think that really speaks to the level and depth that Los Angeles offers in general. I mean, I, I know of neighborhoods in downtown, even beyond the Pinata District, that are just crammed with independent vendors who show up basically to sell to only the other business owners around. And it's almost not for the outside public. So it's just, uh, there's layers to it. That's for sure. I actually thought that was really interesting in the piece that you just wrote about the food, uh, the food truck industry in LA in, in the COVID age. And, you know, there's a lot of elements to, in terms of which ones are doing well, which ones aren't. And I definitely want to get into sort of the reasons why either side of the spectrum takes place. But just one thing that I, I think people may not realize, and, and I didn't quite realize it myself to this degree, how many people get into the food truck industry just as a stepping stone to maybe even a brick and mortar or just building their reputation? Like you actually can start really building a name in the industry through food trucks. Yeah, that's right. And, and there's kind of two models when it comes to getting into the food truck in particular. You either grow up or you grow out. Growing up is uh, using the truck as a stepping stone into a brick and mortar restaurant. And you see folks who don't have a big citywide or national known name do that. But you also see guys like Wes Avila from Gorilla Tacos, who has a fine dining background and decided to start selling tacos out of a in front of a coffee shop in the Arts District a number of years ago, got into the Gorilla Tacos truck, got a cookbook deal out of it, opened a brick and mortar and has now recently stepped away from that to pursue a bunch of other projects. So that's yeah, one version. Huge. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a nationally known culinary yeah. figure who appears on television shows and mostly rose to fame as a result of his food truck because he had an interesting fine dining background that went along with it. Um, the other version is maybe the Kogi barbecue model where you just create a fleet. I had Kogi barbecue cater my wedding in 2015 because frankly, it was, it was literally cheaper to get Kogi barbecue than it was to get my favorite taco truck on the corner of Olympic and La Brea. Those guys, uh, El Chato, do oh. so much business. I, right. They didn't really, I, I, really say, right. I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> love, love El Chato. My, my favorite truck in it's Los great. Angeles. It's great. It is those, great. You know, those guys on a Saturday night do so much business to take them off the block and make it worth their time. And they know me. They like me. They, it would have cost me more money, so I went with Kogi Barbecue. And that's the kind of model you can have, too, where you can create a little mini empire on wheels if you're willing to go that route instead. It's 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 funny, too, because I, and I, and I, I look through as much of the book as I can. I had to do the Amazon thing, and I, I hope 
page 23 and 24 are not the best part because I couldn't access those. <laughs> so like if the best <laughs> stuff is on those two pages, I just will never know. Yeah, you're done. Um, but the, the other thing that like- They were just pictures. Right. You, yeah. you talk about that truck. Andy knows it. I know we've both been there. Um, it's good. There's a place Los Gatos has just started popping up on Pico. Um, I think we might all live in the general same neighborhood. Um, but like you find places. Uh, I, there's a place. I don't, even, I don't know what they are. They, they operate in front of the Smart and Final on Pico around Hoover that I would want to stop at every single time on the way home from Staples Center because they have the best pastor I've had in the city. Yeah. Whatever that's worth. But it, where I am is mostly Mexican. It's tacos. It's you know occasional carts of something else. It's um, you know some you might see Salvadorian pupusas, something like that. But generally, it's mostly Mexican street stuff, which is phenomenal. Right. How much variety is there? Like if I go to San Gabriel Valley, if I go to places where it's mostly Asian right. restaurants, and so am I going to find Asian street food there? Like, how does this work? Well, uh, a few different points. I feel One, really I would, stupid even asking. I've been in LA no, long no, enough no, that no, I should no. know the answer to that question. Yo, you're, you're I feel stupid watching you ask. No, shut up. You don't know it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a bullet I, for you, Andy, and you know it. The, the, the interesting thing I think is, um, and, and I always try to keep this in mind with my reporting, again, there's a county of 10 million people, even larger when you go to the metro population that we cover. Statistically speaking, we're a 26% white county. Anything I think about LA is probably wrong, or at least not quite as informed as it could be. And when you take that lens, you realize the question you're asking says a lot about uh, the patterns of your travel, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to Staples Center and back to your house, and that's why you see the set of trucks that you do. You're probably spending a lot less time in Bell Gardens or in Inglewood, maybe, than other people would be. Um, and it also says a lot about the, the types of things you're particularly attuned to looking out for. The tamale scene now in Los Angeles is in some ways no less vibrant in terms of volume. It's just that most people now in those communities associate tamales with uh, daytime, AM. You see a lot of women selling tamales out of the back of vans next to bus stops for people on their way to work pre-COVID. Yep. And that's the kind of stuff that you may overlook if you're bleary-eyed with a cup of coffee in your hand driving into the office. And so it, it's just, there's different levels to it depending on who you are and the type of interaction you want to have with your city. But more to your broad point, um, I, I think especially now as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and everybody being out of work, hospitality folks included, you end up with more than ever people using Instagram, using their backyard, using their driveway, popping up in front of Sarah's Market in East LA. This is the sort of rebirth of street food that can be literally anything. I'm going to a place out in Simi Valley tomorrow afternoon that's a former fine dining chef who's uh, Hawaiian, who does Texas-style barbecue and grilled Spam Musubi. Like, it's anything you want. You just have to know where to go find it. Wow. It, beyond, the, uh, beyond the use of social media, which you just mentioned, that is a big factor in the survival right now for a lot of these different trucks in the time that we're living in and you know, people perhaps not being out and about as much. Is, is there anything that you're noticing in terms of commonalities for the food trucks that are struggling the most versus the ones that, as you pointed out in, in this piece, some are actually doing better than ever during this period? 
Yeah, I, I think what is true for food trucks is probably true for restaurants right now. It's just the ones that seem to be doing better. And I'm using better and heavy quotes because kind of nobody's doing great. You know, I walk around and in my reporting and I ask people, how are you doing today? And the answer is never good. Like nobody, even if you're making more money than you ever have before because you work in the fucking uh, dumbbell business or something, like nobody's doing that great. Um, that being said- Jeff I Bezos, can, other than him, exactly. Jeff Bezos is legitimately doing great, but everybody else, yes. no. Yeah, yeah, and I listen, I'd love to meet Jeff Bezos. I'd love to I'd love to talk shit on Jeff Bezos to my friends, and then the moment I'm in a room with him, be like, oh, I really love your products. Like, I'm sure- <laughs> The way I'm you sure do that one-day shipping thing, man, that's just great. I just, I can't love get it. enough. <laughs> Uh, but no, the, 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 I think the interesting thing is you definitely see people like the Phyanesian truck, which is a Hawaiian sort of Mexican fusion. He started doing pop-ups out of a longshoreman's diner in San Pedro. And now he's got his own food truck and that guy plays to his community hard. There is a whole epicenter of, um, you know, Hawaiians and Samoans who live in the harbor area just north of Long Beach uh, in the south part of Los Angeles. And those people are really insular. He cooks and serves out of the parking lot of a Christian community center where his kids play football. And there are lines down the block. That guy does not care if I drive from my home near Highland Park and eat his food. He's got more than enough on his plate. And so those people, if you're serving your community the things that matter to them at a price point that complements their needs, then I think you're going to be just fine. It's the people that maybe had a business next to the um, uh, courthouse downtown. It's the people who right. were trying to sell hot dogs on Hollywood Boulevard. It's the folks who maybe have a great product, but they're out in Van Nuys or Northridge and beyond their local community. They just don't have the kind of social media know-how or what other ever other kind of reach to make that product more widely available to people. Those are the folks that are really struggling. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. I, I just saw um, an article about how Jerry's Deli in Studio City that's you know been on Ventura for like four decades right. or something. 1978, yeah. Yeah, it, it's closing and, you know, it's what I what I found really sad about that beyond just seeing somebody's business go under. And you know, obviously you think about people's jobs and stuff is, I mean, if I'm being totally frank, the food at Jerry's has never hate, been I've, I've always always objected even calling Jerry's a deli. Right. I mean it's it's yeah, it's not I don't I don't think it's awful, but it's not great by any stretch, but it has a lot of history, it has a lot of culture, you know, Andy Kaufman when he was on Taxi used to be a busboy there keeping that job while he was a working actor. I think if you know keeping himself grounded and probably fucking with people if we're being honest, I mean it's the sort of thing that he would love doing right? in the first place, but like it's a place that people and families would go to just for being there. Like it's a, it's a gathering spot and yep. you lose, you lose degrees of culture in this city, even when the food itself is in the culture, when places start going under, like on the flip side, I was happy to see that felt like almost kind of out of nowhere that uh, swingers is actually going to reopen on yeah. Beverly. Like they found some investors and it, cause that's another place where actually I think the food is really good. But it's yeah. another place that's been around for a while and it has a culture and a personality. And I've been worried for a while about L.A. losing a lot of its culture in general. Yeah. And the idea of a Jerry's, you know, that that space just becoming, you know, maybe like another Subway and Starbucks. 
no offense to either one of those places, but that's kind of depressing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I go back to my previous statement. You know, the truth is, Jerry's doesn't mean really much of anything to me either, just from a diner's perspective. But the fact that it matters to so many other people, the fact that swingers matters to so many other people kind of proves that I'm wrong and that uh, these places do have a, a sense. They have a, a culture. They have a, they're a touchstone for a community. And that kind of stuff, I think, really resonates in a way that is timeless. We talk about restaurants. I always tell people I I, I like food. I love restaurants. I love what restaurants mean. I love the clatter. I love watching people work. I love the dance of it. And, and knowing that, um, you know, for, for a little bit of money, I can go to a place and, and get treated like a king. You know, if I drop a fork at a certain type of restaurant in Los Angeles, not even because of who I am, but just because of I'm a, a paying patron, someone's going to come and give me a new fork and it's probably a, it's apologize a to me. It, you know, let's, let's be honest. You are a very, I, oh my God, I just saw your hat. Oh yeah, apple pan. Oh, like yeah. that's a, okay. Can you tell me at least that the apple pan's doing okay? Like, I will be very upset if the apple pan has to go somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the apple pan is is you know a, basically a landmark in Los Angeles that can never go under, and it will never go under because they're under the sort of ownership now that is going to make sure that they stick around. There are these sort of cultural touchstone restaurants like uh, like Apple Pan that are that are just never. Nate Now is another example. By <laughs> Plus, I feel like the rent's got to be like $40 a month. Like they've been there so yeah. long. It, it, exactly. And, and I think that there are people who have an interest in keeping that stuff go, going forever. Pie and Burger in Pasadena, I'm less sure of, frankly. Um, and I think if the pandemic has shown us anything right now, it's that these places are much more vulnerable than we've ever realized before. Let me ask you guys, are you native to Los Angeles? How long have you lived here? What's the deal? Uh, I've lived here going on 30 years. Um, okay. Brian is 20 ish something. I moved out. I graduated in 98, moved out right after. So 22 uh, years. 22 years. Yeah. And do you have early restaurant memories or places in neighborhoods where you initially lived that have stuck with you and, and that have either survived or, or had a, met an acrimonious end? <sighs> is this funny? Like, I've, I'll, I'll let Andy go. I've, I've lived. The one thing I kind of regret about my, my time in LA is that. I haven't lived in a lot of different places. I try yeah. to go places. I try to, you know, get out of my neighborhood. Yeah. But I have lived in the same general place. When Andy, when I moved, he, when I moved to LA, Andy and I shared a place uh, in the Fairfax district. My yeah. next apartment uh, that I moved in with my eventually wife was in West Hollywood. Little brag. From there, little we moved to Mid City. Um, and now we live, you know, right on the border of mid city and West Adams. And so it's, you know, it's slightly different. You see things to, but I haven't, it's not like I've lived, you know, in echo park for a couple of years on, on the West, right. like the, you know, Santa Monica for a couple of years and Pasadena. Like, yeah, it's the same general vicinity. And so, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of little places, you know, a lot of the, the, uh, you know, Chinese places that my, my wife and I used to love keep going away. So we stopped going to them because we think we thought we were bad luck. Um, God, I'm trying to remember the names of, I'll tell you one place that I miss. And, you know, I, I, I loved the pizza there, but again, it also is a lot of it is just memories and like it's built up. There was Damiano's. Yes. On Fairfax. On Fairfax. Used to be. I, on Fairfax. That place, it was, you know, it was one of the first pizza places that I'm not going to say discovered because everybody knew about it, but it was a discovery for me. Mm -hmm. When I was in college and first started like exploring Hollywood 
going out, you know, like it was a place where you ultimately end up a lot at, you know, three in the morning. And then for a while I was bartending. And especially when Brian and I were living in the Fairfax area, you know, you get done with a shift at three in the morning, you're hungry. And Damiana's is one of the only places that I could actually go to eat something that wasn't just awful. I mean, it was maybe bad for me at four in the morning, but like it actually was good food. Yeah. You know, and like I, yeah. I enjoyed it. And, you know, I actually thought the pizza there was really good. But yeah. that, you know, I know as it was getting closer to eventually shutting down, I had friends who thought that the quality of it had gone down, whatever. But yeah. like it, it was a it was a hang, you know, and it was yeah. like it was something that people of my age range living in L.A. at that time and, you know, people who lived there longer Everybody knew about it. And, you know, I I feel like places like that are the ones that that I miss the most. I mean, honestly, I have felt more, I guess, nostalgia or noticing loss with bars that have closed in L.A. than than restaurants. You know, like, I mean, a lot of the places that, you know, growing up were like my playground, especially like in the Hollywood area, you know, Smalls, Lava Lounge, you know, I mean, all the... for most, I mean, for most was gone, and then I like how you just referred to these places as your playground. They were my playground, dude. I'm just saying, <laughs> I like that, that's a, a very. I mean, pickup artist, yeah. Oh my no, god! No, well, I mean, here's the thing: like when when back when Andy needed a playground, that's where he used to. Who the hell do you think you are? It was. I look, it man. Was it was my a play- playground. No, no, it was a playground. <laughs> I didn't. No, it was a playground. I didn't say I was a playboy. I said no, it but it's I'm, just, I'm going to mock you for using the 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 idea of those being your playground. It <laughs> was my playground. I'm not apologizing. Free for and easy line. Show them the long hair picture. I mean, you know, you I know. will. <laughs> you want to see the long hair picture, Charlie? Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to see the long the long beard picture if you've got one. The ZZ top. No, like, look at that. That's back when Andy needed that. a playground. Look at that. Look at that. Oh my look god! That guy. You tell me a guy like that. Now picture that at the lava lounge yeah. and tell me that that man's inside yeah. a playground. I mean, I didn't want to. I didn't want to brag too much, but yeah, that guy needed a playground. <laughs> Come on, man! You tell me that guy in Hollywood didn't need a playground? Give me a break. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and, and to be honest with you, I think the bar scene is. We try to cover it as much as we can, but I, I think they're in really dire straits, even compared to restaurants. There is little pathway forward for them to reopen anytime no. soon, and even less in terms of federal financial intervention. I drove by the powerhouse. Remember powerhouse in yeah. Hollywood? Yes. You know, Hollywood and Highland, classic, you know, stinky little sing, yeah, single I mean, story building. It is still there, correct? Yeah. Yeah, but the but it's boarded up and who knows? You you think of um the woods in Hollywood or uh Coach the dime Horton. on Fairfax. Yeah, exactly. Well the dime so, used to be uh God, what was the dime was a couple incarnation. Dime was before that. that place we used to go to a lot because we said we used to live in the Fairfax district that was walkable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, that yeah. place has been a few things. I thought Coach and Horses was already gone. It's been gone a while, but those are the type of places, though. Oh, that, right. I see what you're saying. That right, I right. have nostalgia for. I mean, even as somebody, you know, frankly, getting too old to be on the bar scene, like you still recognize it. Like you recognize, I think, even more as you get older, what they meant to the character of the city. Like before, when you're in yeah. your 20s, they just represent alcohol and meeting women and being with friends. Like that's it. Right. But you start to realize like all the important parts of a playground. Yes. All parts of the play. They were the attraction of the playground. But then as you get older, you realize, you know what? That playground had a little bit of history, a little bit of character. Like a lot of spots like that. What, how, how, how common is it in LA? Do you think for people to get out of their neighborhoods? Like even, I'm not even like, 
I don't even, I don't know where things are in Santa Monica. Like I don't, you right. know, I, I can get into, you know, Culver city. I used to work in Culver city. So I know, but yeah. like, again, we're not talking about way out of, you know, the area. Like no. I, I've, I've always regretted that I don't know more places. You know, I, I did some stuff covering LAFC up, you know, where they were practicing. So that got me into a few places that I hadn't been before for lunch. I'd always stop and eat somewhere, but there's just, there's so much food in this city that I haven't eaten. I mean, you do this for a living. How hard is it to get, you know, to really make a commitment to, to, to finding these places, you know, when you have to live your life? Yeah, I mean the, the commitment is there. It's just uh, the volume is is truly untenable. You know, I I've been to my first year in Los Angeles. I went to 125 street food stands, and I used to have a Google map, and I'd put little pins down on places I'd been and things I wanted to try, and passing that around from friends and then friends of friends was how I ended up kind of initially getting into this business in the first place, and. Even now, at that volume and the rate that I've been able to achieve, I'm probably, say, six to 800 different street food operations, going to another one tomorrow in a guy's backyard. Like The, the ultimate reality is that I'm maybe one-tenth, one-fifteenth of all the street food operations in Los Angeles operating in any given month. Like It's just impossible. And so what I really have to focus on is less about trying every restaurant because I'm not anonymous. I'm not a food critic. My job is not to say, oh, the green beans are bad. My job is to go and tell the stories that represent restaurants and the people who run those places and the people who dine there. So um, I don't thankfully need to go and eat at every single place, but I am perennially curious and I am always looking for that next neighborhood, that next restaurant and the next story to tell. So it's a challenge, but it's one that I really welcome. You know, podcasts are my friend. I spend a lot of time in traffic just cruising around trying to figure it out. Now, did you, when did you arrive? I moved to Los Angeles in 2007. Uh, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo up on the central coast. I'm originally from a super, super small town all the way up on the Canadian border, the northern tip of New York state. So uh, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. All of that stuff was brand spanking new. My town's about 400 people. My family, I'm, I'm one of six kids. Um, they're literally all lumberjacks in the Adirondacks. Like, I, like my dad is the guy with the leather strap and cleats and a chainsaw, the whole deal. Um, and I'm the only one who doesn't do it. So I, I managed to make it to California. And so every step of this experience has been new for me. And I, I'm just really thankful to get to grow with this city and thankful more specifically that I get to grow with the food scene here because of how much it's changed in the past 12, 14 years. Well, two things. One, can you swing an ax? I can. I have, you know, I don't do much of it these days, but I can. Um, and then secondly, I mean, you should at least be thankful coming here in 2007, like it was in the age of GPS. And because I would think that you're that that type of job looking around for street food as a as a new person in L.A. In LA could be really intimidating and confusing. Like there, there's a reason, you know, Jonathan Gold, the, the late great Jonathan Gold went up and down just Pico. You know, I mean, yeah. it's one, you know, it's an amazing street, but like it's a good way to prevent getting lost. Yeah, and it's it's also a knowable continuum. Yes. You can have a path and complete it. I remember, you know, the first place I ever lived was behind the old Fox Hills Mall in Culver City. Um, so, sort of Crenshaw that here in that area, and I had a motorcycle and a backpack. And I, when every time my motorcycle would break down because it was an old piece of crap, eighty four Honda five fifty, I'd take the bus to work, and I'd have to go through all these neighborhoods that were super unfamiliar to me. But that way of seeing the city slowed me down a little bit and allowed me to realize what different neighborhoods were geographically where they uh where they mattered and and 
you know, when you talk to people who now are going to come visit Los Angeles or move to the city, you ask like, oh, what neighborhood do you live in? We tend to have this idea that the neighborhood somehow identifies them, right? If you live in Santa Monica, you're a certain type of person. If you live in downtown or the San Gabriel Valley or Pasadena, you're a certain type of person. And to be able to see that from my motorcycle or from a bus window and now from my Subaru Forester, uh, I'm really grateful for. And I, I think that that's the kind of cool way to break down the city. It's, it's less about this individual restaurant in some place. And it's more about what does it mean to the community? What does that community mean to the larger whole of Los Angeles? I mean, you guys talk about mid city. Like I lived off Venice and La Brea for years. It's truly yeah, one of my basically, That's places. basically where I am now. Yeah, exactly. Lucy's 24 hour is my favorite breakfast, breakfast burrito in Los Angeles. Okay. I will, I'll do this. I lived at Pico. I lived two blocks from, you know, I lived at Pico. Yeah. And I never went there. Really? I, I have been. Yeah. But not what I lived in that same place for like four. How long did I live in that place, Andy? Three or Seven four years, years, five years. I never went to Lucy's. I also didn't go to the Roscoe so that I could see from my front <laughs> door if I had just peeked out into the street. Like I, it's, it's just this amazing, like, you know, I yeah. we ate out and we ate some places around there, but yeah. like, you know, we just never, never went to Lucy's. Never, it was just your habits what? that. Yeah, to, there's also no urgency. You feel no urgency yeah. sometimes if it's right next to you. Exactly. You just always feel like, well, yeah. I can get there. I should try something else that I happen to be in the area, whatever. And you know, the, the place around the corner just always feels like it's there. Therefore, I don't need to go. Uh, Farley exactly. earning some street cred here on the chat. <laughs> Farley's forever local, says the kid from NYC. Only locals call it the Fox Hills Mall. Outsiders call it the Westfield Mall. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've been here long enough to see the changes. Now, the one question I have to ask you as a, as a mid-city person, did you ever spend any time at Capitol Burger? Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Oh, God. Oh, Absolutely. Oh. But see, again, I, if my, but you got to put all these things like, like we could have, you could have gone to Lucy's with kids and stuff. My kids don't eat like the chicken and that's, they're not going to eat, they're not just right. going to eat it. And so we didn't right. go. Yeah. What they will eat is Capital Burger. <laughs> so oh. we went there a lot. Oh um, and that was that was sad to see that go. But like, Did yeah, little stuff like places like that. I'm always on the lookout for, you know, the burger thing is so big now. And you guys actually, you know, you featured their yeah. breakfast sandwich on your on your list of uh, that you guys have up right now at Burger 99 or 99, whatever it is on La Brea. Yeah. And I've always kind of wanted to stop. But it's, you know, you go in and it's, it's like six or seven bucks for the burger and five bucks for fries. I'm not spending 14 or 15 bucks for my kids to have a burger and fries. I'm just like, like I can't do yeah. $47, you know, 48 bucks, 50 bucks to go get a hamburger with the kids. Like yeah. that's too much. You know, capital burger a was really fucking good and we can go places and it's, you know, those are the places I'm always on the lookout, not just a good hamburger, but like a good $4 hamburger, a good $3 hamburger, not a good $7 hamburger. That's so, I mean, look, I, it was the kids great. like McDonald's. And I, at some point I sort of stopped trying to upsell them on other things. I'm like, wait a minute, they're, they don't know the difference. If I'm yeah, not going to eat, I can get out of here for $7 where everyone exactly. gets fed. Yeah. And I think that's challenging. You know, I see it a lot more from the operator perspective and it's really tough to make a living selling $3 burgers, $4 burgers at the kind of volume that McDonald's requires. And so I have a little more compassion and not to say that you don't, but simply that, that, that 
It's kind of what you're saying. <laughs> no, I'm just saying the cost, the cost is becoming more and more of an issue. And one of the things I think we're going to see coming out of this pandemic is uh, a realization not only of how precarious the restaurant industry has historically been, but the true cost of goods and services. I've been telling my friends for years, you know, when you go to Whole Foods and you look at their meat department and like every cut of steak you'd get at Avon's is like two to two and a half times as expensive. And you're like, what the hell? Like, that's the real price of beef. That's what we should have all been paying all along. Yeah. The stuff you're getting otherwise has been artificially subsidized. And so the McDonald's of the world are doing a disservice to normal restaurants by offering you that 99 cent burger oh, in the first so place. Good. Yeah. I mean, it tastes good, but like I, I went to, right. I mean, and I apologize. I was, I was answering a question on the chat, like in the, uh, uh, the grand central market, the, really good butcher that makes the hamburgers. Del Campo. Del Campo. Thank you. I went there with a friend of mine and it, it was delicious. Right. But I got to be honest with you. It's not, I, I, have no, I never felt the urge to go back. Not because it wasn't a good hamburger and like you taste the beef and you taste, but in my brain, when I, when my brain says I want a hamburger, it's not that I want McDonald's, but what I want is that sort of griddled yep. flavor of something that's come off the, you know, whether it's, Apple pan type thing or whatever is where I can taste 63 years worth of hamburgers coming off of that grill and, yeah. you know, something like that. And I, it was, it was delicious and I'm glad I ate it. I don't need to do it again. And yeah. it's funny how, how those things work. The flip side is like something like father's office or that type of thing. It's like, I enjoyed that. Not that that's a cheap burger, but I, I, sure. I enjoyed that as a place that I would go back again more than the something that was sort of gourmet the flip side of that is like i've been to animal a couple times where they do you know meat in some just extraordinary ways and would eat there every day if i could it, yeah. and it wouldn't kill me the oxtail poutine is something special it is, oh my god really that's that's a that, that's a potential mount rushmore meal like dish in LA. It is that good. I have been trying, by the way, um, I found it in an old text and for whatever reason, it's not cooperating, uh, with the downloading process, but we were talking about capital burgers on, uh, Pico that closed. It was just this little mm -hmm. stand that had been there forever. Did you see the sign that they put in their little window of oh, this so shack sad. when they closed? Like I found the photo cause I, I wanted to try to avoid paraphrasing if possible. It was just a little like piece of paper, like a three ring binder piece of paper, you know, lined that just said, goodbye, we loved you. Yeah. Like it broke me. Like I, it actually, I almost cried. It's like when the I end of MASH. I will tell you guys absolutely unequivocally, Capital Burger is one of the first restaurants in Los Angeles I ever truly loved. And I had the opportunity to tell various stories about them over time, including interviewing the son after his father passed away and trying to keep that legacy alive and him crying, talking to me about how much his father had meant to that neighborhood. And then finding out the day that they were closing to drive over there from my house and watch them pull out the kitchen equipment. Oh, and the son, the son looks like Randall Tex Cobb. Like he's this burly dude who looks like he should be in prison. Every time you got the box of fries, it was a cut open beer box. They'd slide yes. under like a metal grate. Like it, it, it felt like a kind of place that if you didn't know any better, you would think was either some crappy hole in the wall or a place without a bunch of part. And to watch or that condemned. Dude, 
You would think exactly. It was yeah. Yep. And to watch that guy give away his dream because a developer came with enough money to say yes and he couldn't hold on to his father's legacy anymore is the stuff that will follow me to the rest of my yeah. days. Yeah. You know, th- there's a place that it's one of my favorite spots in LA. Um, it's off Pico, kind of near Staples Center, um, a Cuban restaurant called El Comal. Then it's in a strip mall. Um, uh, it, like this, by the way, if somebody somebody just asked the question on the chat, like a good place to eat around Staples Center, this is a great place it, to eat. It, I I love this place. It's one of my favorite places, but it's also been around either fifty or sixty years. I can't I can't remember if it opened in nineteen sixty or nineteen seventy, but wow. it's and it's it's family owned, and you know I've been there a couple times in the pandemic. You know, like everybody, I'm conscious of budget right now. Yeah. But I've been, I've been there a few times and, you know, I've asked them like, are they, are they doing all right? And they, they seem to be doing okay. But like, I can't imagine what it must be like for them. You know, it's one thing to be trying to maintain a business in this climate, period. It's going to be yeah. brutal, but it's another thing where like when it's your family business and it's your family business that's been there generationally, like, I mean, yeah. the, the, the amount of pressure has to be brutal right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I know people that I've talked to that are leaving the industry entirely or going to try to recreate their version of the industry in some other town that's close to where they're from. And that's going to be the the short term loss of this whole thing. Eventually, hopefully we are on the other side of, of some level of this pandemic and you're going to start to see the grassroots grow again. You're going to see the return of street food, the return of relatively inexpensive leases, maybe the places that were the busy spots, the Abbott Kinney's of the world out in Venice, those are no longer the hotspots, at least when it comes to dining. And we reset our expectations. People down in Cerritos are getting all the great food. People in you know, uh, uh, Windsor Hills are getting all the great food or Northridge or something. And I think that that's the possibility that I'm the most excited for. Well, this is this is one of the, the things that I, I think is fascinating about LA is Particularly when you get into different types of, of, of you know, different cultural, you know, uh, areas, different ethnic foods and all these kinds of things, like the quality of stuff that you can find in some really random places mm-hmm. is, I remember Andy and I did a, a feature on a, a which former USC running back, I forget who it was, a bunch of years Charles ago. White. It was, I think was it was it? Charles White. I no, think. it wasn't, but it doesn't matter. Um he lived way out, you know, in in somewhere like the the way deep East Valley, like you know, forty five minutes at least from where we were. You wouldn't had us meet him at this sushi restaurant, and we're like, okay, we'll go wherever you want, and you know, all that stuff. And but very low expectations for the quality of the sushi that we're about to get in the you know super deep. It was one of the best places I've been. And yeah. it, the sushi was delicious. There's a place that is in Thai town. That's um, it's a ca- little cash only place. Um, I guy still I, I hope it's still there. It's a little cash only place. You go in and the pho there is spectacular. And yeah. you know, like the the, the woman makes you know, the the sauces and stuff that you put in, like these little things. And so when you do stop, if you find yourself in another neighborhood. And can just randomly stop at a lo- what looks like a little mom and pop type place. There's a chance that the quality of the food could be as good as something you would spend 25, 30, 40 bucks on if you sat down on Abbott Kinney or Sunset or you know, closer to the places where I've lived most of my time in LA. Yeah. 
You're absolutely right. And, and frankly, uh, to give you a little bit of a ray of sunshine, those places have a real opportunity to make it through this pandemic simply because their economics are completely different. If you look at the old school places in Chinatown, a lot of the families there were smart enough to buy the building that they're in. They now and have probably for years run the entire operation just as a, a family themselves, the husband and wife cooking in the back, sons running dishes, whatever. Their necessary income is so much smaller than a lot of the fancy places that tried to open up with 200 seats right before the pandemic started. And so that place is going to hopefully survive in a way that a lot of the other places won't. And it's going to be a reshifting. It's going to be a rejiggering of the market. But I'm a little more uh, optimistic than I think I was four or five months ago. Okay. That that leads to actually something I wanted to ask. And it, it touches on a piece that you had written about for Eater LA or, and I mean, not even one, but uh, multiple pieces or blurbs about different places that actually are opening up, you know, that, yeah. that are actually starting up now. Beyond, I guess, just somebody having the capital to do it, is, is there anything that you're seeing that could explain the confidence someone would have right, you know, to open right now that it could work? Yeah. Some of it's the inertia of it. You know, when you're talking about the restaurant that you see open or recently open in your neighborhood, people don't really realize that that's often a two or two and a half year project, if not more. But take a Louie. Yeah, but take a Louie in downtown Los Angeles. You guys know the big tall ceilings, marble everywhere. They are one of the uh, top 10 highest grossing independent restaurants in America. They just print money, especially as they came on board with the rise of the regeneration of downtown. They've been planning to open a restaurant in West Hollywood for four and a half years. and It's finally opening next week. So this stuff does take time. And some people are so invested that they figure the only pathway is forward. Um, but other people are getting into new deals. You know, a, a leaseholder maybe has a space that's been available for a long time and all of a sudden the landlord is shot for cash so they want to get somebody in. You look at Petite Peso, uh, Ria Barbosa, a really fantastic chef. She worked at Squirrel for a long time, Canale, a lot of other prominent places. They were supposed to open as a tiny 400 square foot Filipino takeaway spot for dinner. But because of the pandemic, they realized that, you know, people didn't really want the sort of late night food that they were offering. And so they switched to a more casual model. They shifted their hours and now they're doing lumpia and sizzig and all the sort of basic staples and getting back to their original roots. And that's enabled them to open during the pandemic and be relatively successful, even as they had to shut their doors for certain days because of problems in downtown or civil unrest and all that sort of stuff. You know, there are ways to make it through this sort of thing. And not only that, to be a great neighborhood uh, community member and, and to continue to feed the people who matter the most, it's, you just have to be a lot more strategic. This is you, a great, this is a really interesting question um, from, again, from the kid in NYC, your thoughts on Yelp's impact on the food business? Because this is a really controversial topic, I think. Yeah, so I, uh, there is absolutely no denying that Yelp is the greatest restaurant database the world has ever known. And in that sense, the ability for me to go to some place that I'm unfamiliar with, whether it's a neighbor on the neighborhood on the outskirts of Los Angeles or Indianapolis, Indiana, and to look up a type of food or to just put in dinner and find something that appeals to me, fantastic. The problem comes when one, you trust the star rating on Yelp to give you an accurate sense of the place. Um, and I'll give you an example. John and Vinny, the old Damiano space on the yeah. Fairfax there. Yeah. Um, John and Vinny's within their first uh, 12 to 14 months had a kitchen fire that put them out for about two weeks at that location. 
And when I was writing, you know, quick news blog, early sort of days, putting up a story about this kitchen fire at the hotly anticipated John and Vinny's, I happened to click over to their Yelp page. And on that day of the kitchen fire, there were two one-star Yelp reviews from people who showed up with a reservation and were turned away because the building was on fire. Now, if that if that one-star Yelp review counts the same as a five-star review, then it means the whole system's fucked. So I think if you can throw out the star system, you're doing a little bit better. The other half of the equation for Yelp that you hear from on the operator side is that they're essentially a pay-for-play scheme. And Yelp doesn't like to say that and they refute that, but here's the way the model works. Anybody can create a page for your restaurant on Yelp just by deciding that they want to leave a review. But those reviews are not all created equal. Yelp's algorithm can decide which reviews they choose to highlight or not highlight. And if you look at any Yelp page at the bottom, it'll say non-starred reviews and you can click through or you know reviews we didn't trust or whatever the language they use now is. And so what Yelp will do oftentimes is hide those highly starred reviews to drag down your rating and then they will physically call you and say, hey, we'd love to help you out. Why don't you wow. advertise with us on Yelp and I wow. guarantee your rating will go up. And they boost those reviews out of the gray and before you know it, you've got a bit of star system. Nice this little restaurant is, you got there. Shame if something bad happened to it. Exactly. And then the restaurant can't do anything about it. The, the platform doesn't belong to the restaurant. They have no control over whether or not the restaurant's even listed. You know what it is? It's a restaurant version of the way r- DJs in radio stations used to be able to hold labels hostage. And, yep. you know, if you wanted to have something be a hit, you needed to pay off these DJs to make sure they were playing it. Wow, like it's the exactly. same basic concept. Media. Like, hey, Jeannie Buss, you want something nice written? You might want to, you know. Well, okay. Remember, there was. For, for the last that, couple by the way, of is years, not true. No, it's not we true. But like that. the last few years, um, you know, largely, I, if not exclusively, among Laker fans, there has been this conspiracy that Steve Ballmer, the owner of the Clippers, has been just paying off you know parts of his billions upon billions of dollars towards different members of the local and national media, paying them off to talk about the Clippers positively. <laughs> and say great things about them, talking them up as a contender, and that all of us have been on Steve Ballmer's payroll. A, I don't believe it's true. But B, if it is true, I am insulted that Steve Ballmer didn't even attempt to bribe me. Like, I mean, I'm not saying I would have taken it, but it's nice to be asked. Like, I I would like the opportunity. And what does it it say about me if he doesn't even think I'm important (laughs) enough to bribe? If Andy and I are being paid off by Steve Ballmer, we are the shittiest negotiators that you can find in this city. Because, I mean, I am fortunate, you know, I'm, you know, first world problems through the pandemic, not complaining. I am not getting paid off by, if I was being paid by Steve Ballmer, I'd be living larger than I'm living. <laughs> you know, you know, you know how you could tell if I if I was getting paid off by restaurants to write stories about them? You wouldn't hear from me. I wouldn't exist. I would be <laughs> on a beach somewhere. That's how right. you would know. Yeah. Remember that but, story I told about how you know I'm not taking the kids for you know what amounts to you know $17 burger and fries? I am yeah. if I'm on Steve Ballmer's payroll. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, that's why all I would spend I would spend my money on travel, food. And probably shoes. I really like shoes. I got a soft okay. spot for shoes. But there that's about go. it. What else? Can, I mean, I don't need, I'm not a car guy. I'm good. Yeah, it, it's fine. Can we can we go back to burgers for a minute? Of course. Uh, 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 what, can I ask, where did you guys grow up? St. Louis. St. Louis. 
Okay, so you have a you have a pretty robust burger culture in St. Louis. Uh, are you aware of, of like before you moved here? Were you aware of, of how much burgers matter to Los Angeles? Um, no, I didn't even. I know it took years before I even got the impression that they did with the sort of the burger renaissance, the umami burgers, and yeah. because to that point, it was mostly you know it was Capital Burger, it was. Tom's one through 193. It right. was, you know, Tom's Apple number Pan. three on Pico. Right. Tom's. Right. It was, it was whatever you find downtown, Tommy Burgers, and yeah, all that stuff in and out, you know, for, you know, people. And that was one of the other questions earlier up there about whether or not we should all agree that in and out is overrated. Um, we've had Gustavo I, Ariano on a couple times, okay. and, you know, just you can either in or out comes up in any kind of sentence. You can just get him going really quick on it. <laughs> Um, then again, I like, I feel like burger culture was a thing until like yeah. seven or eight years ago. Yeah, well, I, I don't, I don't recall. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I don't recall yeah. it when I moved here in 1990. Mm -hmm. I don't recall it being as big a thing, but at the same time, I was also in college, and you know, a lot of times when you're in college, you're living pretty insulated. My first year in school, I didn't have a car, and you know, it, this was USC way pre-revitalization. So, you know, it, like the the environment surrounding USC now is way different than when I was when I was going to school there. So, the, and then also too, I'm in college, I don't have near, you know, I don't have as much money. I I don't have, you know, disposable income that sort of thing. So, it's like and most of the most of the disposable income I had was was put more towards my my playground in Hollywood in, in the bars. So, it it took a while before I really I think even started discovering a lot of the restaurants around LA, but but I don't recall it being as big a deal. Is then. it always? I just don't remember it being a big deal. Well, this this is what I would posit to you: the places we've been talking about, the, the Tams of the world, the uh, Lucy's of the world, these are burger restaurants. These are places that began their life as usually drive-throughs or quick service car mm -hmm. stops for burgers. And they've essentially become amalgamated over the years into something that is entirely unique to Los Angeles. I wrote a story about this a couple of years ago. We now kind of label them fast food diners, the place that does like Burgers 99 and might have a breakfast sandwich on the menu. It's definitely got a burrito on the menu. They might have old Greek staples like gyros, gyro fries left over on the menu, but they have burgers as their backbone. And these places are relatively unique to Southern California. You don't go to many other parts of America and find a Tams number three that does a version of literally everything from a milkshake to chili to burger to breakfast burrito to carnival and on down. And so the reason, just like you talk about driving from Staples Center down Pico and only seeing a certain type of street food, the reason you may miss that stuff is because it's so thickly woven into our city. 1948, the Snyder founding family from In-N-Out created the two-way speaker box to allow for the modern drive-thru. That's how deep Southern California's burger roots go. You know what I mean? And I think that once you have the interconnecting of the state highway systems, once you have commodity beef and the flooding out into the suburban markets in the 50s and 60s, you start to see In-N-Out, which started out in Baldwin Park, become a massive success because people wanted inexpensive food, talk about a you know $3 wow. burger, and driving out of downtown. We are the place, the cheeseburger was invented in Pasadena. There's a plaque by my house commemorating it that sits okay. in front of a bank. Hold on for a second. Because this, you talk, we mentioned we were from St. Louis. Yeah. 
my favorite thing to do when I'm in the mood to troll my wife, which is <laughs> probably more often than it should be because sure. your husband should do those things. Uh, it's just not worth it is to talk about all the foods that we invented in St. Louis because mm -hmm. as she likes to say, we invented everything. Like, but there's, yeah. according to, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of legend, we invented the ice cream cone. We invented mm -hmm. the hamburger. We invented, I think we may have invented the hot dog. We invented, we basically invented everything, including the stuff we actually did invent, like gooey butter cake and toasted ravioli cheese or whatever yeah <laughs> but everything it all came out of the 1904 world's fair which is apparently a great place for food and tremendous racism if you go look it up it's like the most racist world fair ever um but the food was good so, <laughs> small yeah. price to pay for great I food mean, inventing. For, for yeah. inventing the hamburger um yeah. do we know for sure because i don't think that they invented the hamburger in st louis Right. Um, I, I, I think Lewis is the <laughs> in Pasadena, or is that just making shit up? I'm okay with it because yeah, it's, the, the one, but right. The reality is a lot of it is these sort of spurious claims. Uh, who knows? Some of it has been lost to time. People have tried various forms to figure it out. Even if you look at Philippe's and Coles and who invented the French dip. I was going to ask you. Like, we yeah. have two restaurants in LA that argue about who invented the French dip. Exactly. So it, it's a little bit of just the fun of the whole thing. But I, I do think it speaks the fact that I'm I'm within a mile of a plaque on the ground that says that, you know, we invented the cheeseburger. I do think speaks to the kind of nature of the intensity of love for burgers. Which place? Is it still there? It's, no, it's no longer there. Um, it was called the the buyer, not, not the buyer, right? The right spot or something like that. It's on Colorado Boulevard, sort of between Pasadena and Eagle Rock. And, you know, they, they say that on this date in 1927, some kid decided to put a slice of cheese on a burger. So who knows? But I, I have a great story that, that if you'll give me 90 seconds of your time, Drink I think kind of, kind of speaks to this. Show goes there until was, we hit the off button. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so for years, there used to be this place down at Florence and Normandy in South LA called Art's Famous Chili Dog. And yes. Art had moved, yes. And Art had moved out from the Midwest and claimed to have invented the chili dog. Same thing. I'm sure it was invented in St. Louis, right? But he moves to the West Coast and says, this is my invention. And, and his real tweak on it was that he used a caseless hot dog. So it didn't have that snap specifically because he wanted the chili to kind of meld and put the bun and hot dog and cheese all kind of together. And so what happens is this guy moves out in the 1920s and he finds that the neighborhood he's in is like orange groves and aerospace engineers or whatever working for the Hughes family. And, and all of a sudden the neighborhood starts to change with the interstate highway system and the, the flooding out of, of people in, in uh, into suburban markets. And then you've got the um, black migration from the South into Los Angeles and you get redlining and so all of a sudden, South LA or the 50s, 60s, 70s starts to look pretty dramatically different as the city begins to leave that entire community behind. Arts is still there and Art Elkin continues to believe that he invented the chili dog. Up into the 80s, you know, into 1990, he dies and his family is trying to keep the legacy going. And a couple of years after that, you have the, the LA riots. And, you know, this city is uh, at a racial flashpoint and, and on the verge of burning down. And if you guys remember, famous here. video. Yeah, exactly. Famous video footage of um, the truck driver, Reginald Denny, getting pulled out of that truck on live television. If you go watch that video footage, it happens in front of Arch Chili Dog. It's in the frame. 
The family sells it a couple years later to a guy who grew up going to the high school next door, married his high school sweetheart, and runs up until relatively recently a drug rehabilitation clinic in South LA. Unfortunately, Art's closed last year, but for years, even between the 1990s and 2019, people in that community knew that you know you don't mess with Art's. Whatever happens, this is the place that matters to this community is. And as we continue to try to draw in resources from the city that left us behind, Art's is a place that we can point to as some that has it's, historical resonance it's like the, 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 i was the gonna point, say it's like the, the drew league in south central um yeah, it, exactly it's the exact and, same concept and the, the ultimate point being whether or not the hot dog is any good at arts doesn't matter at all it's everything but whether or not the basketball the drew league is the best basketball you've ever seen doesn't matter at all it's about everything but uh, we got a couple questions. Um, I want to make sure we get to um, from the from the chat. Uh, first, a interesting question: We were talking about street food. Is there such a place or uh, or such a thing as street sushi? Um, I don't think so. You know, there there are people who you know who do random pop ups. I, I've been to backyards in Highland Park with old French chefs who smuggle in cheeses. Like anything is possible, but in terms of like a weekly ongoing street sushi, it's not something I'm familiar with. But hey, please, if you found out about it, let me know. That seems. Uh, I mean, I I am I'm a pretty liberal. Again, my wife makes fun of me. Like I see a shack somewhere with smoke coming out of it. I'm like, I bet that place is really good. It's either really good or like going to kill me. But I, I'm not even. It I, seems dicey, but I just it was such. Street sushi does seem. I figured the answer was no, but it's so unusual that if the answer happened to be yes, I wanted to right. know. It, right. It, it, like one of those one percent that if the one percent hits, damn. Well, how much of you? How much have you found this to be true? Like, if a strange thing exists, it must be good because otherwise, there's no way it could be a thing. Like, I don't know what that is, and I, I don't necessarily trust it. But it's been there for twenty years or whatever, and therefore, people, you know, yeah, it's too weird not to be good. If a place has stuck around long enough, there's got to be a reason why. And maybe you guys have had this version too, where you you walk into the wrong random bar on the wrong night and you can clearly tell that it's a Mexican mafia spot or something like that. You know, we'll have those sort of interactions. Back, back when Andy had a little too much to drink and got his playgrounds confused. <laughs> I, I stopped in the I'm Coyote sorry, bar. sorry, guys. I thought this was my playground. <laughs> I stopped, I, I, Carry I on. I stopped in the Scorpion <laughs> bar a few times on Pico Boulevard and that place was like not for me um so you know i i think that there is uh i think a little weirdness goes a long way but yeah uh, there's probably if it's been around 20 years a reason it exists for sure um the the coffee spot uh our friend yeah, we need to fader. Answer this question mir and fader our friend uh at bleacher report yeah well she needs this, a, this a good coffee spot preferably a new one yeah. Well, this is what happens. People, uh, people ask me general questions without any sort of qualifiers whatsoever. She may live in Van Nuys. I have no idea. So most people don't want the best thing anywhere Let's in Los see if Angeles. I can find out where she, you guys talk about other things. I'll see if I can find out where she lives. I tend to find More that not, people. Yeah, not literally, but. 
Yeah, but pe people usually like the okayest thing in their neighborhood, right? Because as we say, like LA gets pretty provincial when you get down to it in these certain communities. So new places, newer places, I would recommend. Um, Obet and Dell's in East Hollywood is a really fantastic new coffee shop. Um, I would say Bloom and Plume in historic Filipino town is another really great coffee shop. Ooh, Hilltop, like um, Hilltop is in Windsor and View Park area. They just opened up a new coffee shop here in Eagle Rock. And so there, there's a couple of places that are still making it work, but it just depends on where you're at good boy bob if you're on the west side is a fantastic option okay all right well, i'll write right. some of these down i might we'll have to try to help me later try to help her out with that um i i also wanted to ask because i thought this was interesting it was also off a piece that you recently wrote um fine dining right now has been for obvious reasons taking a bath and you know i mean it it feels like a first word first world problem when you think about the patrons but this is still somebody's business at the end of the day. Like, how long do you think a lot of these places can last? Like, I know I, I ended up on Musso and Frank's uh, mailing list from a dinner I went there years ago. And they had sent like a bunch of emails that they were getting closer and closer to reopening on even a limited basis. And then it turns out that was premature. They can't do it. But like, you don't do fine dining carry out. Like that's just, yeah. that's not why as good as the food is you go in part for the experience. Like even I, I would imagine, even if, even if you were able to open up like 25% capacity and we're not consistently there anyway, but the, that won't cover the overhead. Yeah. Uh, the places that have been managing to do it relatively successfully are able to pivot. Inaka, one of the best fine dining Japanese uh, kaiseki restaurants probably in America now does bento boxes and is in very high demand as a result. That's a version of staying solvent. Um, Antico, if you look at them kind of at the edge of uh, Larchmont and Koreatown, they were a handmade pasta spot doing super rustic Italian food. And now they do focaccia pizzas and sell some of the best ice cream you've ever had. And so Ooh. people being able to switch it up, I think is going to keep them relatively okay. But the other folks, the dialogues, you know, 18 seats, 600 square feet, um, 22 courses, that sort of stuff has a, a limited shelf life. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think there's a market for it in Los Angeles. And if we want to sort of be seen on the larger world culinary stage, that's what the world asks of us. But the reality is it's not how the majority of us want to dine, care to dine, or should be dining. There is so much good food in your immediate communities, eat in your local strip malls. These are the kind of places that are going to keep you fed for way cheaper. And you don't even have to worry about the other stuff. Uh, Here's a city. Is the is it was where we need the coffee shop. So, uh, before we're done, just let let me know. Uh, uh, here's a, here's an interesting question from Granted LA, and I I think he's being serious with this. Is it true there's a pastrami mafia in LA? Like, is it, don't they have to get approval to make pastrami in LA? That's not that's not quite true, but I will say that most of the favorite places that you think of for pastrami come from the Giamella family and those, those people do, um, provisions. That's uh, awesome. Provisions. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the GML family is, is historic to Los Angeles. They make the pastrami for Langers. They make the pastramis for a lot of particular places. So it's not to say you can't make your own pastrami, but you'd be better off going to Jamela's. To, to your knowledge, they don't have people killed to your knowledge. 
No, our, our thankfully our supervision doesn't need to do that. Their their food is good enough. <laughs> like, have you have you ever heard anybody from the uh, GML family say, "Leave the gun, take the pastrami," like anything like that? I just I just want to see an old fifties Cadillac and a couple of guys stuffing somebody <laughs> rolled up into a carpet in the back <laughs> where pastrami's gone wrong. I love the idea of you need to get the okay from the GMLs for yeah. GMLs <laughs> for your pastrami. That is amazing. Yeah. I would say Matt Giamella will give you a call if you're doing this sort of volume of pastrami around Los Angeles to draw his attention. Like, I mean, absolutely. like, do you have do you have to give him a tribute? <laughs> like, now like you a, sound like you're trying to be like Lando in Cloud City, staying <laughs> under the radar of the Empire. Like, we're a small operation, so you know we've managed to stay out of the Empire. He's like, you know, exactly, um, exactly. For for coffee shops in Mid City, really quickly, you should try Neighborhood, which is literally two doors down or right next door to Burgers Ninety Nine on La Brea. That's a really great option. Okay. It's new-ish, maybe year, year and a half. Old oh, you know what? And there's a place on there is a place on West Adams that I've been meaning to try. I cannot remember the name. I likely is oh right over there. Uh, Adams Coffee Shop is right. Adams over Coffee there. Shop. That's what it is. Yeah. All right. Thank you. You got it, Marin. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, put that out there. I'll see yeah. if she heard it. But speaking, otherwise, speaking I'll, I'll of uh, the, the pastrami, uh, before before we let you go in a bit, before uh, the pastrami mafia. The, it has been a bad time, you know, the last decade or so for delis anyway. My God, they they must be, as an industry, they must be getting crushed. Because, I mean, that I I, I assume you've seen that documentary, Deli Man. Yeah. Um, it, it's fantastic. It's a great, great documentary about the culture of delis. But what I learned from that that I, I really didn't know, though once you think about it, it's kind of obvious – the overhead for delis is insane. Like, like more than any other genre of food, delis are incredibly expensive. And culturally, we have moved away from a lot of deli food, you know, sort of deli lifestyle. A lot of it's pretty unhealthy. It's not terribly exotic. I mean, like, you know, Jewish food is not <laughs> traditionally heavy on spice. Uh, you know, like it's not... I like the food, but it's not necessarily the most interesting, fascinating, complex food. You know, it's not food. No, it <laughs> and there's like, some, there's, there's some, some chaff. There's some chaff in our wheat. <laughs> there's a little room for improvement. <laughs> but like a, as an industry, like delis must be just getting crushed right now. Yeah. And I actually talked about this at KNX 1070 today, the, the radio program there. And for some reason, delis have, have become again a conversation point because of the lack of success they've been able to find through this whole thing and i, I think you're absolutely right Andy, in your point which is you those restaurants are generally large they generally play to a really price conscious somewhat older community of people who may not be in line with the way that modern palates have chosen to dine out and they don't really have the ability to to swing to delivery and takeout as easily um the sort of stuff you like going to a diner for especially if it's cancer is 24 hours is just not translatable through a postmates app and so when you when you drill down into uh, expensive protein heavy foods that don't necessarily have the ability to translate to delivery and takeout. I think they're all in peril. The good news is there are a ton of other options. Um, Jeff's table here in Highland Park, that's a place that's doing Jewish style sandwiches. Uh, the Bad Jew is a pop-up that does a pork pastrami that she pops up out of her house. That's a version you can go get. So 
Wait, there's, there's a, is this a pop-up that's out of her house? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, this is uh, pop-ups out of her house, number in, the, number in the thousands, but this one is called The Bad Jew, and she does, like, bad girl Jewish food, including, like, a pork version of pastrami, and that's the sort of stuff that is going to keep the lineage, if not the, the direct remake of the Jewish deli movement alive. Oh, wow. All right, so you, you asked us before we started, now I'm, I'm Googling The Bad Jew, um, because this I hope looks. I don't come up. <laughs> it is. It's a picture of Andy. Yeah. That was be careful. Very disheartening. Since his bar mitzvah, um, you had you said you might have some questions for us, and we this was supposed to be an equal uh, equal exchange, and of course we I got mean, greeting. So, um, we 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 just peppered you with questions. Is there anything you wanted to ask us? Well, no, I, I mostly, you know, when I, when I talk to people about food and I, and I always love doing stuff like this, I want to know what people's culinary backgrounds are, you know, what okay. sort of stuff you grew up eating in St. Louis, you know, um, if you had to, uh, well, let, let me, let me start by asking you this. If the mayor of Los Angeles kicks in your door right now and says, you've got to leave by, you know, 4 PM, let's say 8 PM tomorrow night. Um, what, what's Can the last Canada? meal? Yeah. What's the last meal you would eat in Los Angeles? You know, yeah. assuming pre-COVID, assuming you could go get the oxtail poutine if you wanted it. Like, what's the meal you would do in LA? Oh, that's a tough. Oh, that's a great question. Honestly, Ooh. it would. I, I'll start with my 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 eight year old would say we're going to Top Round Roast Beef on Olympic. Great um, beef on the Love it. Yeah, my ten year old would be like, "Can you just make me some spaghetti with parmesan and butter?" I'm like, <laughs> seems like a wasted opportunity. I honestly, I think I would go get street food. I think I would yeah. go get street tacos. I would do something like that because I'm not finding that probably wherever I go. And if I do, it could be really good, but it won't be the same. If we did this in Texas, it wouldn't be a different kind of, of street food. Like, I think that's probably, because that's my favorite stuff to get out here. Yeah, I'd probably make Los Gatos get together with, oh, I'd want that pho. I'd, I'd assemble. I mean, if you, I, I need a budget. Like I'm like, how about this? Give me an extra two hours, but I promise I can keep this under forty bucks. Great, I love it. <laughs> Deal. I I might go to El Comal. I mean, I really love that place and good Cuban. Depending on, I guess, where the the is the mayor. I assume relocating me. Like, I mean, it, like, is this witness protection? What do we do, by the way? Why do we? Why do we <laughs> like, yeah. But, but it, I mean, I I think I would I would like to go there one more time just because I really enjoy it. I would, God, I would definitely be looking for some type of ramen before I took off. You know, yeah. some type some type of taco. Like yeah. and probably the what what is it called actually? It's a, a La Brea and Pico, um, Leos. I I might be looking for Leos. Leo's, good. Yeah. Leos is really, yeah. really good. My kids, oh, we drive by that a hundred times, you know, a month just because it's um, literally on the way home. Okay, and they you know always what? get mad because Leos has a better line than the other place. They feel sad for the other place. Um, I would want to go to a place. Um that I really like. And also they've been so incredibly nice to us and our family. Whenever they visit, it's called a uh, Della Terra yes. on Beverly. It's a Ta I guess it would be like a yeah. Italian. Um, yeah. it, Italian, it, it, I even like Italian. Italian, a little yeah. bit of Mediterranean. And I guess they, it's fantastic food and they may be the single nicest people that own a restaurant in LA. Also, Brian, what is the name of that, um, Armenian place? That we would always go on those when we'd have those business meetings in Glendale. 
They oh always my take God, us with to. Roars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, the place is amazing. It is some of the best oh Mediterranean food, like called? Mediterranean. I'll uh, find it. More importantly, like, you're like a person who's Almalfi or something. It, I'll find it. Um, you've eaten at a lot of places. I mean, you've eaten. A, what What is your answer to this question? Well, my answer is going to bore you simply because of the conversation we've already had. I, I will tell you straight up, I would eat at El Chato. Uh, the Al Pastor quesadilla from El Chato Taco Truck at Olympic and La Brea is my probably single favorite dish in all of Los Angeles. With that thick, smoky chipotle salsa, man, it is so, so good. And it's not the most quote-unquote authentic. You know, Tacos Leo earned a lot of buzz early on because – they were bringing that Mexico City style of the El Pastor Trompo and the guy shaves it off with the pineapple and all that sort of stuff. Chato is not that. But uh, the, the way that that place has come to define my time in Los Angeles and the flavor profile that I can get from that is, is truly unmatched anywhere else. There are other great restaurants, uh, Bestia, Bavel, the Republiques of the world. You know, there, there are spots that I think are fantastic, but it's got to be one. It's got to be El Chato. Adana is the place we were thinking of. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. On San Fernando. Oh, it's uh, delicious. It's really, really good. good. I, let me tell you, if you're getting kicked out, it's also a great place because they give you an insane amount of food. Like if yeah. you're going to be on the road for a while, <laughs> wherever you're getting <laughs> relocated. I've always wondered those kinds of constructions, like some gun to your head, you have to choose between, like, you know, uh, this taco or that one. Like, why would that happen? Like, what are the circumstances <laughs> where somebody's really going to put a gun to my head and actually make me make that choice? It's a very well, extreme way to get from one place to another. Yeah, I think particularly during these pandemic times, I've found that um, the mayor's office doesn't like me very much because I ask a lot of questions about like his alfresco program and why like street food vendors, which number in the thousands are not uh, able to get permitting to serve on sidewalks, but restaurants can get no cost permitting and an expedited process to go serve food outside. Um, the mayor, if he showed up at my door, that would probably be the thing I imagine he wanted to mm -hmm. drag me out into the street over. Wow. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just hard. I mean, there's so much, and I agree with you. I, 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 when you, when you consider how important these, you know, these places that just every, you know, like I said, there's not, I don't even, there's, I don't even think they have a name. They're just the guy who makes tacos at the corner of Hoover and Pico mm -hmm. every night. And, you know, the, the, you start to see the line kind of goes around the corner a little bit and that makes you want to stop. Like, you know, it's good. The locals, these are people who live in that neighborhood. They, they, they're there. And they're there for a reason, you know. They, you know, like I said, I, we love Los Gatos. They pop just on weekends on Pico. Woman presses out. It's the only place that I've gone to that I the, where they press out their tortillas themselves and all that kind of stuff. Those little things are so important to food in this city, and food is so important to this city. You, LA, really now has permits, a food so you have to for figure long, it out. For a long time, LA got crapped on as a food city, yeah. and in the, like the last decade it now has you know not just a better reputation it has a great reputation yeah and i think it took a long time for people outside of los angeles to come to the realization of what we've already known because you know if you look at the east coast dining scene especially out of new york city it's got this european vibe and that's just not us and now people are willing to eat the way that we've always been eating and so i couldn't be happier to have the job that i have for sure um, all right, we we have we've kept you over the the uh, allotted hour um and hopefully maybe we can do this again when because we still have uh, people have questions we've got questions a ton of fun for us yeah uh, this is to, great to man. Do thank this. you um, of course thank you
So we, we'd love to have you back another night. Again, Farley Elliott, senior – get my whiteboard back – senior editor at Eater LA. Uh, go check out the book. It's really cool. And again, pages 23 and 24 I think are spectacular. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing those it's as cool. well. Uh, Los Angeles Street Food, A History from Tamaleros to Taco Trucks. Go pick it up. Um, and we'll do this again sometime. Thank you so much. We really Absolutely. appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And um, I still have a million more questions for you for next time. Oh, Excellent. definitely. I'm glad they'll be uh, next Monday. Time. Bruce Feldman is going to join us. We're taking Tuesday off and we'll get back to basketball on um, Wednesday. I'll put this up there. See with Anthony Slater from The Athletic. So everybody have a great weekend. Get out and vote if you haven't done it already. And we'll see everybody on Monday. Thanks a lot. Donk you, Nederland.